welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So as always, a big thank you to those of you supporting the podcast via Patreon. Your pledges really help the production of these episodes. So a huge thank you to all of you for your support. The lineup for the upcoming clinical reasoning series is being finalised. The series will cover topics such as ethics of disease, values-based practice and reasoning, thinking narratively, embodied reasoning, plus more cognitive perspectives such as hypothetical deductive reasoning, pattern recognition and knowledge schema. I've got some wonderful guests planned. Some have appeared on the podcast before while others have not and I'm super excited to talk with them all and hopefully create a rich, insightful and useful resource for clinicians and students. And a final note, it seems like Episode 21, with David Nichols titled Saying the Unsayable and Thinking the Unthinkable, is having a resurgence, despite it being recorded over a year ago. And I'm frequently receiving messages from you saying how much you enjoyed the episode and how much our conversation resonated. I'm not quite sure the reasons for this or what to make of it. But as radical as Dave's views might be, i.e. to reboot physiotherapy and osteopathy, and start again. The idea at least seems to speak to the crisis of existentialism, lack of belonging, identity, and the general discomfort or dissatisfaction of where we currently find ourselves in. Anyway, I'll keep digging in this topic, I'm sure with Dave again, and others too, and we'll see where we arrive at and what the solutions might be. So on to your questions, of which there were loads. And as usual, I've tried to select those to ensure a good spread of topics. So, first question. What was your journey from positivist research to constructionist research? And well, my starting, I think we all probably start in positivism. Certainly for me, as I've said before, my undergraduate and early postgraduate research and education were firmly rooted in positivism. So... My research projects were around measuring and testing objective biophysiological phenomena such as pain or or muscle electromyography. And my memories of my undergraduate research education were mainly around statistics and quantitative study designs, cross-sectional surveys, experimental studies, kind of pseudo-trials and I published a little bit using those designs. And I didn't really give it much of a second thought. To me, that was what research was, that there was really only one type of research, which was numbers and statistics. And I think that our undergraduate education pretty much socialises us to think about research in a certain way. That this dominance still of quantifiable, measurable, numerical knowledge And so my entrance into other ways of thinking about research and specifically constructionist or social constructionist was through my PhD in which I 
had to begin to understand complexity, essentially, when I sought to explore how clinicians, specifically osteopaths, conceptualize practice, how they think about clinical reasoning and decision-making, how they think about their patients, how they thought about their professional identity and their relationship with their profession. And I think the minute I started to ask those sorts of questions, which didn't easily lend themselves to a quantitative design and wouldn't allow me to really explore these ideas in an open way without predetermining to some extent what I was looking for. So that was my entrance into qualitative research, specifically social constructionism. And some of the key work which has inspired me, and I'll link some of these resources in the show notes. So Ken Gergen, Kathy Shamaz, who promotes social constructivism to underpin grounded theory, Bergman Luckman's seminal text, The Social Construction of Reality, but also Berry's social construction of medical knowledge was also really helpful for me to begin to adopt this social constructionist attitude. So I think what social constructionism offers for me is an attitude to see everything as problematic. You know, the stuff that just seems obvious, uninteresting and self-evident. All those assumptions and intuitions around practice, around our therapeutic or clinical role, around our research methods, it really forces us to stop and ask, you know, what's going on here? Why is this the case? And from whose perspective is this being promoted? And so from a research perspective, this is helpful because it recognises the range of positions and meanings and helps us appreciate where we're standing. And this ties nicely with my chat with Professor Martin Kush on relativism in episode 52, that relativism offers us a a moment to recognise that our meaning, our truth and our values are really only locally situated. And from a clinical perspective, social constructionism challenges the neutrality of practice. The idea that case histories and patient stories are just extracted or taken from the patient really doesn't make any sense in a social constructionist view. But rather, social constructionism allows us to embrace our own and our patient's involvement in that interaction and the co-construction of meaning within that interaction. And as a result, we've become much more alive to their meanings and the social relationships in which these meanings develop. And also, we become very aware in what we're contributing to the construction. And I think this intense focus on what they're bringing and what we're bringing and what is the product of that bringing contributes to feelings of authenticity and validation of their views and their positions that patients really value and launches us into a therapeutic relationship. So, more social constructionism. Have a look at some of the links in the show notes, and I'll try and link some videos too. Next question. What's been the best paper you have read or authored? That's a toughie. There are so many. Um, I'll try and divide it up. So as a clinician, I really enjoyed Ben Darlow's qualitative work on the impact that clinicians have on people's low back pain. The two papers were titled The Enduring Impact to What Clinicians Say to People with Low Back Pain, and that was a 2013 paper published in the Annuals of Family Medicine. And the second paper was titled Easy to Harm, Hard to Heal, 
Patients' Views About the Back, published in the journal Spine in 2015. And these papers were, were just phenomenal because they brought voice and light to the negative impact of what we can say and what we can do to patients who are suffering. And it was just a revelation to me and a big influence in the whole Words Matter project. As such, Ben literally was the first name on my list when I started the podcast. And you can listen to our conversation way back in episode three, titled Enduring Explanations and Building Beliefs in People with Back Pain. The papers are linked in the show notes. And if you're an MSK practitioner or really any healthcare professional spending any amount of time with people with back pain, these are crucial papers to read. And as a researcher, there are loads too. Professor Antti Bryant wrote a series of papers criticising classic or Glazerian grounded theory for its positivist notions and put forward a constructivist version. This was really helpful for me arriving at how I viewed grounded theory to conceptualise, collect and analyse qualitative data. And I suggest that these essential reading to anyone wanting to use grounded theory. And I'll link some of them in the show notes. And of course, you've got to listen to episode 44 with the constructivist grounded theorists, Jane Mills and Melanie Burks, who have written so brilliantly and moved their methodology on epistemologically. As an author, that's quite hard. I've been fortunate to write with so many brilliant academics and clinicians, but I think that probably the two papers that I wrote on qualitative research with Nicola Petty and Graham Stew really presenting the philosophy and methods of qualitative research to manual therapy and musculoskeletal practice. They seem to have had the most citations at least. And we really appeal to clinicians that the way in which they conceptualize their clinical practice will influence the sort of evidence that they value to help navigate their clinical practice. And we borrowed from the educational literature this notion of this varied topography of clinical practice, where there's the hard high ground, where problems are well-defined and lend themselves to solutions through the use of research-based theory. And our argument was that to view practice as being technical and rational, then you're going to view the clinical reality as being pretty linear and mechanistic and that problems are predictable and straightforward and that you're particularly interested in analysing cause and effect relationships and that practice is really about the application of value-free skills and knowledge. And if that's the view of clinical practice that you hold, then we're going to utilise quantitative research to generate knowledge which can answer some of those questions. So in a technical rational view of clinical practice, we might be asking questions such as, is this treatment effective for condition X? And what are the risks associated with the treatment? What will be the biological or psychological effects of the treatment to the person's body or their physiology? And what are the mechanisms behind our treatment effects? So those sorts of questions lend themselves better to quantitative research. However, in the swampy lowlands, which is messy, confusing, problems are ill-defined and there often isn't a technical solution, 
than a professional artistry conception practice where practice is creative and flexible and their problems are unpredictable, complex and ambiguous and we're making context-specific judgments. In this view of clinical practice, this professional artistry view, the sorts of questions that we'll be asking and the nature of the problems that we see would mean that we would be asking questions such as what is it like to live meaningfully with disease or pain? What is the nature of our therapeutic relationships? How are treatments conceptualised and interpreted by the patient? What are the illness and pain experiences and beliefs and how are these constructed? And what are the social, cultural and psychological processes and contexts involved? So those sorts of questions which really allude to the complexity and the context sensitivity of practice would lend themselves to qualitative research which can provide insights into those more tacit and discrete areas of our clinical work. So in the paper we present these two views of clinical practice and argue for more qualitative research to understand the complex, hidden and artistic aspects of our clinical practice. So that's why I enjoyed them, to make the connection between our conception of practice and the source research that we value. Next question. As a clinician who is also a researcher, did you ever struggle with the transition? Did you have feelings of being lonely and not know how or where you fit in? Any tips? I think by its very nature, a prolonged period of study such as a PhD is a pretty isolating pursuit. There's probably only about five people on the planet that really have a connection or maybe interest into your research. I'm exaggerating, but but it really is a solo journey to some extent. It's an onerous task and I suppose a bit like going on a huge diet when everyone else is not on a diet, can make you feel like a bit of an outsider. You become very familiar with the experience of people asking what your PhD is about. And about three words into telling them, you begin to see their eyes mildly glaze over. But there's also a struggle if you're a clinician doing research often into your own clinical practice or your own profession. And that can create some separation that you're pursuing something that the vast majority of your clinical colleagues don't really have a sense of. And you can begin to feel like an outsider, particularly if your research is critical or questioning of the norms and traditions that many of your clinical colleagues just really take for granted. I think probably having a recognition that when you're doing research into your own clinical practice or into your profession's clinical practice, you often hope that it's going to change dramatically your colleagues' work. Invariably, it really doesn't do too much. And so I suppose just being prepared for people just not caring about your research as much as you did or finding it as rewarding as you did or being grateful or pleased that you're researching this topic potentially for the good of your profession or your colleagues. Certainly, if you're a clinician going through a 
doctoral study, you certainly come out the other side a different type of clinician. You think differently, you probably act differently. The clinical world just doesn't look the same. And it's hard to turn off those critical, analytical faculties that were developed during the PhD. So there's always a slight element of discomfort, which others may not experience if they haven't been through the same process. I think just recognising that whilst your PhD is deeply important to you, it just doesn't carry the same importance to most other people. And that's okay. And then just getting a, a network of people around you that have either been through the doctoral process or are going through the doctoral process that can support you and you can share your experiences and your struggles like any support type group. And a related question, as a practicing MSK clinician, what is the most useful MSc or PhD? Um, I think the first thing to say is that a PhD is really not only an academic qualification, but I suppose you want to think carefully about what the career prospects are should you pursue a, a PhD. It can certainly be helpful in clinical practice, but it's by no means essential, whereas academic roles tend to now require doctoral level qualifications. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend a PhD to any clinician unless they had thought carefully about why they want to do the PhD and what they hope to get from it. I'm unable to really say what the most useful MSc is. It would depend on your clinical context and speciality that you're going into. But certainly MSCs, and most of them do have these built in, which hone some of your critical thinking skills, that epistemological humility that you become quite comfortable with uncertainty and not knowing everything whilst at the same time developing some specialist knowledge, whether it's in philosophy or the pain sciences or neurobiology. I think if I could go back and do my MSc again, I think I'd probably want to choose an MSc which is a bit more theoretically rich. So rather than just equipping me with clinical skills or propositional physiological knowledge, I think an MSc which introduced me to the more complex side of practice, maybe some introductory philosophy, social theories, as well as reasoning and thinking skills. I'm not sure if such an MSc exists. If not, why not? Next question. In quality research, are themes constructed or are they discovered? That really depends on the view that you're taking towards your qualitative study and towards your data. Positivist notions of qualitative research would say that the themes are in the data to be found and that really it's the role of the researcher to sift through the data just like they'd sift for gold and these themes just pop up passively out of nowhere and the themes themselves have no say as to whether or not they're found but they're just passive objects floating around in the data. In contrast, a more constructivist view would say that themes are constructed through interacting with the data, and it's the researcher that 
builds these themes through an interpretive process, and that interpretation comes from the researcher's position, their values, their own biases, their own theoretical sense, and to some extent is part of that construction. So it's a much more active process, and it really depends on what side of the fence you're on. But certainly the idea that codes and categories and meaning just passively emerges naturally from the data and the ensuing analysis, that's a very, I would say, positivist notion where there is knowledge there to be found if you can just reach inside the bag of data and get hold of it. Next question. Is there anything that you think makes osteopathy particularly unique compared to other similar professions? Um, I've talked on this before in previous AMAs and spoken to Dave Nichols and Dave Newell on this topic. It's often claimed that osteopathy has a somewhat unique set of principles or philosophy which distinguishes it from other similar professions. I'm yet to see much evidence of that. I think the underlying philosophy is representative of the the time that it was developed and it's arguable whether you could call it a philosophy as such. It seems to be a set of tenets or principles or a kind of mantra that students and clinicians are reminded to hum to themselves or mumble to themselves during a patient interaction. And I think the shame is that there's, from my point of view, the philosophical basis and theoretical basis of osteopathy is so rudimentary, so underdeveloped, and there's such a rich, diverse range of theories and philosophies that can begin to shape and influence clinical practice that it's a shame that we anchor ourselves to, to this traditional set of ideas. It just doesn't seem plausible that there is something within the osteopathic theory which hasn't really been developed for the last 100 years, which is offering a unique perspective on patients, their suffering and their care. Everything that I've seen generally points to kind of biomedical reductionism, pseudo philosophy or pseudo-scientific thinking, which was commonplace around the time that it developed in the 1800s. So I think my advice to osteopaths that are seeking some philosophical grounding for their work is to read the rich range of theories out there. And I've talked about some of them on the podcast, from phenomenology to critical theory to post-humanism to inactivism or affordances. And whilst these theories aren't necessarily anything new, they've been worked upon, there's been significant intellectual work from academics, clinicians, philosophers to really consider their premises and how they might relate to clinical practice. So anchoring your practice to an underdeveloped philosophy or theory merely because it's thought to be osteopathic, to me, seems like you're missing out on a a much more fruitful 
and rich and hopefully effective way of working with patients. And I think for those of you that are seeking a more theory-informed or philosophically rich way of practicing, have a listen again to my second conversation with Dave Nichols, which was episode 51, where we talk about the lack of theory and philosophy within healthcare and healthcare education. And my own view is that theoretically and philosophically informed osteopathy and clinical practice really offers us a way of thinking analytically about our practice. As we saw with the Cause Health series, it helps us make sense of complexity and allows us some kind of groundwork for our methods and techniques. Because as Dave said, methods are the least interesting thing about quality research. And I would say the same, that the clinical techniques, whether it's manual therapy or intervention techniques or examination techniques, these are the least interesting things about osteopathy. So we've got to think about the theory and philosophy first, which will help inform our techniques. But the techniques themselves, they're kind of boring. Next question. Why do osteopaths and other MSK practitioners prefer guru experts over solid, fundamental evidence? I'm not entirely sure what is meant by solid, fundamental evidence. Nothing is really that solid. There is an inherent instability of knowledge. But I think the first thing to would be to point you towards the recent episodes with Carlo Martini on the nature of expertise. And we talk about pseudo-expertise and genuine expertise. And Carlo wonderfully articulates how we perceive and can recognise expertise. I think gurus appeal to clinicians' struggles around complexity and they offer certainty and answers within a sea of uncertainty. They've often got the charisma and confidence to draw people in and persuade them that they're able to see the unseeable or do the undoable. But I think as Carlo points out, we need to be able to develop the capacity for students and practitioners to be able to discern genuine expertise from bogus expertise. But before we do that, we also need to rethink what constitutes expertise in osteopathy and manual therapy, whether it's just a series of technical skills and anatomical, biomechanical theories, or it's something else. And as long as it's the technical skills and the anatomical wizardry and clinical mystery, which is valued by osteopaths and students, will continue to see an appeal of gurus which which promote these somewhat simple skills to navigate an ever more complex clinical terrain. Next question. I really enjoyed the quality research series. I was wondering how you integrate qual research into your clinical practice. Um, Good question. So I think like any evidence or any piece of research, you never apply the research directly to the patients in front of you because the patients weren't in the piece of research, whether it's a randomized controlled trial or qualitative study. And this is the problem of induction or the inferential gap 
which I've spoken about with Roger Carey and Matthew Lowe a few times on the podcast. So check out those episodes to find out more about how to locate people in research studies and population-based studies. But I think what quality research can do with its hopefully rich theoretical narrative and the thick descriptions from participants, it can help you reflect on the findings of the study in the context of your own clinical reality and it can prompt you to think, how does this study, this qualitative study or these experiences or this social process or these attitudes or beliefs or this discourse, how does this relate to my own clinical work? And you can begin to use it to offer some kind of theoretical leverage to get some kind of perspective on your own clinical practice. You can begin to think about your own patients. You can get a sense of the range of experiences out there, which of course are infinite and quality research cannot capture them all and wouldn't claim to have that level of generalizability. But by having an appreciation of the rich stories and experience of a small group of individuals, we can begin to think about our own patients in the context of these findings. And of course, for your fix of qualitative research, check out the qualitative research series, and I've linked the series in the show notes. That's it for this MA. Thanks so much for your questions, and I'll see you in the next episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs and check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain and I'll see you next time.